The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs recommends Daryl Lee Australian licorice for all your candy cravings. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling, for you, the listener, Star Trek. Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek First Contact. The Lost Boys. A Clockwork Orange. Galaxy Quest. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Independence Day, Logan, Reading Rainbow, Westworld, and AI, Artificial Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. Today, I have as my co-host Amanda Nicastro, writer and producer of the award-winning I'm Just Kidneying, a solo comedy about how she donated a kidney for her sister. Hello, Amanda. Hi. <laughs> Amanda, why don't you tell the audience what movie we're going to be talking about today on Robots vs. Dinosaurs? We're going to be talking about Star Trek Generations. It's one of the first movies I thought of when you were like, hey, think of a movie with dinosaurs or robots, because Data is... One of the best robots in movie history, and as far as I'm concerned. I grew up watching Star Trek. I don't know that I would describe myself as a huge Trekkie, but my dad was a huge fan of the original show, and uh, my sister and I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, and then we continued on with Voyager and Deep Space Nine. <laughs> so, um, And I've seen all the movies at least once. Very cool. Do you watch the new Star Trek that's out right now, Discovery? I don't. That's like the only, I'm not very familiar with a lot of the new stuff. I just keep rewatching the old stuff. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it myself. I know, I know of it because I'm a big fan of uh, The Walking Dead, weirdly enough. And Sonequa Martin-Green left that show to go to Star Trek because it was, she was going to be headlining the show. Uh, so I was like really happy for it, but also they wrote her off of The Walking Dead. So Which character um, was she on The Walking Dead? Sasha. Uh, her, her oh, oh, and she was yeah. great she Good really amazing. was like she had was a lot of presence she was really fun it. she was also around that time on new girl and she was a really fun character on new girl but she very quickly got written off that show too so what is the star trek is something that has a lot of history and i am incidentally enough this is the first star trek movie that robots versus dinosaurs is covering so thank you very much for bringing it because it also is one of the few Star Trek movies that I have personally seen. I might lose some followers for this, but I am a much bigger Star Wars fan than a Star Trek fan. <laughs> it's not to say that I don't like Star Trek. I like Star Trek very much. It's just that Star Wars, I think, maybe got to me at an earlier age, at a more like influential age. So it got to me sooner. And so every time I've seen Star Trek, I like it, but it doesn't have the same magnetic pull for me. So when I watch a movie like Star Trek Generations, I find that I love it. I find that I really want to explore the lore of it and the history more. And the great thing about that is there's tons of it. So this movie particularly came out in 1994, which if I'm not mistaken, that was like at the height of the show, Star Trek Next Generations, or had, it, or had the show wrapped up by then? Or do you know if it was, I feel like it was still rolling in the mid nineties. Like it was a big thing and that's why they made a movie. 
was to capitalize uh, on the success of it? I don't, I should know. Start we can verify that very easily. Let's look yeah, it up. Yeah, we both have little <laughs> pocket computers. Computer, please find when. <laughs> <laughs> so Star Trek um, Next Generation. We did, my husband and I did start rewatching the show Star Trek Next Generation during quarantine. Let's see here. It ended in this year. It ended, it looks like, in 1994. There you go. And that's probably why they did, because Generations is a crossover with Captain Kirk from the original show and Jean-Luc Picard, and they meet, and that's probably why they did that. Because it's a nice little button, I think, this movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah, as a way to wrap up the series, The Next Generation, since that's, I guess I guess that's how, that might have been how it was intended, was to wrap up the series, not to necessarily kick off the next season of the show or anything like that. So yeah, as a as a send-off to Picard, as a ending of a lot of these characters' arcs like Data and Geordi, um, this is a kind of nice button. You're right, it does bring in some of the past. That was kind of the draw of the marketing of this movie. Is And that's the reason it's called Generations, of course, is that it, we're seeing this new crew that we're all, our generation that grew up with this Star Trek, with Next Generation Star Trek, is endeared to and we love... Jordy and Worf and, and Riker and, and Counselor Troy and all those characters. If I, I remember the marketing really selling the fact that it was going to be this new crew and the old crew, because they showed a lot of like Scotty, Chekhov and Kirk interacting, at, at, which only really happens at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it only is in the beginning. They don't they don't come back. Kirk is the only one who comes back later in the movie. So Which surprised me. That's a little false marketing in my opinion. I don't remember the marketing for this movie, but yeah, they're just at the front they are introducing the un- unveiling of this new enterprise with a crew that we're only with for a couple scenes. <laughs> we don't see them again either. And then, you know, uh, cuz in the movie Captain Kirk gets swallowed by the Nexus. Mm. Uh, which is a very interesting uh, science fiction-y thing to me. Yeah, yeah. And then we we fast forward 78 years later and we're with the Next Generation crew. And that's pretty much who we're with until Picard meets Kirk in the Nexus. Yeah, yeah. so that's very misleading marketing-wise. That's a marketing thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> um, I, like, it's just in the trailer, they really use those shots of, from the beginning of the movie, of Chekhov and, and of Scotty. And I, I, I guess I guess the movie that I wanted it to be, as a kid, I wanted it to be that, like, mashup. I wanted it to be like, oh, these characters are meeting and they have their counterparts and the old is learning from the new. And, and like, I'm glad that it wasn't, though, because that's very much, it, it, it played with your expectations. And I think going back to that opening scene that you're talking about, I always like to... Uh, dissect the opening opening shot especially of a movie and the opening scene and what that sort of sets us up for what the director is trying to what seeds they're planting that that are going to sprout later on the movie so this movie the very opening shot is just space just a star field space two exclamation points and this uh rotating floating bottle of champagne Mm -hmm. it's it, it comes from a distance and you're not sure what it is at first and then there's this real close-up shot where in 1994, they were showing off their CG effects with it <laughs> reflecting the star field off of the concave bottom of the, of the glass uh, bottle. And yeah, it ends up smashing against the side of the Enterprise NCC-1701B, uh, 1701 Bravo, 
So Amanda, that is, as I understand it, that's the original Enterprise that Captain Kirk was piloting. The, the new one on Star Trek Next Generation was the 1701 Delta. And I only got that from this movie because in this scene, when the champagne bottle is smashing, we see the Bravo on the side of the ship designator. Later on, I think it's when the Enterprise, the saucer detaches and it crashes on on that planet. Mm -hmm. We see the Delta next to the NCC 1701. So do do you know, is this, is the ship that Captain Picard is the captain of literally the same ship that Kirk was the captain of, but like everything is updated on the ship? Or did they actually rebuild the Enterprise? This is a new ship with a different name. Oh, bunch of Trekkies about to be mad at me. I don't know. I (laughs) I can edit this out. (laughs) I will see. I just always assumed that it was a new model, that it not necessarily, I mean, it's a different ship, but it more than an updated version. Like it's just a new model. Okay. That's, I just always assumed that my dad would totally know the answer to that. Like, because like, you know, you were talking about the the difference between uh, Star Wars and Star Trek fans. Mm. I feel like one of the things that attracts Star Trek fans is that there is a lot of science behind the show. Like if you want to yeah. go find schematics for these different models of the ships, you can find them. Klingon is a real language that you can learn. And my, that was something my dad was always fascinated with was the, because my dad is a mechanic, an airline mechanic. Cool. Yeah. Yes. So he, he would, I could probably text him and be like, Hey dad, (laughs) he would tell me the answer. Well, that's, that's a good, that's a good point. Like a a lot of, that's what I've noticed too, is a lot of people that are like Trekkies, people that are much bigger Star Trek than Star Wars fans. They tend to be like engineers, mechanics, um, people that love the math and the science and and the hard actual real science that it's grounded in. Star Wars is is definitely, and it's packaged this way, much more as like a fantasy. There's more actual magic. Mm-hmm. There's more things that happen that require you not to look into the scientific explanation of them. No. Whereas Star Trek <laughs> rewards you for looking in to the scientific explanation of things. Even though you'll discover a lot of it is quote unquote science, but it's yes. still based in this real science and and, and, and it actually ends up teaching you a lot of things if you get curious about the fantastical versions of science that, that they're showing you in Star Trek. So yeah, yeah, I think it is just an updated model of the same ship. And I like how this whole scene in the beginning plays with a lot of our expectations of what we know about Star Trek. Me as a very casual watcher, there were a lot of things I was expecting. Like when I saw Captain John Harriman showing up, or AKA Captain Cameron Cameron Fry from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Alan Ruck's character. Mm-hmm. He is wearing this red shirt, so that's already like a flag. And he's making a, <laughs> yeah. a series of bad decisions. He's hesitant to help respond to this distress call. So they're really setting this guy up. And then there's this moment where somebody has to go to deck 15 and, and fix the communicator or the whatever. And Captain Harriman, the red, the literal red shirt at this point is like, I'll do it. I'll go. And then Kirk stands up and says, no, you've got the chair. I'll go. And at that moment, I'm like, oh, okay. He just saved this guy's life. Cause that's some, that's the job the red shirt would go do and get killed. So he just saved this guy's life. No danger. We're fine. Captain Kirk has it but Captain Kirk didn't have it. Captain Kirk was the red shirt in this 
like twist of expectations, which was a really cool way to open the movie. Yes. No, he, I never, I never put the red shirt connection together in the opening scene. Can I also just say though, like, I don't, I don't feel like that captain has given enough credit. Like he knew they didn't have a tractor beam. He Mm. knew they didn't have a fully operational crew. Like captain Kirk is sitting there. Like he, in the scene, he like starts to get up and then sits down and starts to get up and then sits (laughs) down. And Scotty's like, is there something wrong with your chair captain? And it's like, yeah, you're not the one captaining the ship. Sit your butt down. But this this other captain knows they don't have all this stuff that they they can't go do it. So I don't feel like the, I mean, I definitely feel the way it's shot and the way the, the camera pans and the, the the dialogue, it makes this guy look like he doesn't know what he's doing. But I right. honestly think that he's like, I don't have a full ship. I don't have fully operational anything. We can't save these people. Like we're just shit out of luck in this scenario. Yeah, it is not at all that that uh, he's a bad person or that he doesn't want to rescue people. It's that he is a victim of the same bureaucracy that they're all be- beholden to. Their photon torpedoes, their medical staff won't come till Tuesday. It's scheduled for Tuesday. Yes. <laughs> and they got to do this dog and pony show to Pluto and back. They're, they're saying it's a stroll around the neighborhood or something like that. Yes. And like I think this is actually more uh, representative of Kirk because he's the captain that would like jump in and do whatever but yeah I don't remember your original question (laughs) (laughs) uh well it was more like I just wanted to I kind of just wanted to introduce this this opening scene and talk about how I think Star Trek at this point in 1994 is aware of its tropes and is aware of the audience expecting certain tropes so it kind of, it, the writers, I feel like, had a little bit of fun with this scene, thinking like, okay, once Kirk steps up and takes charge of the ship, that that's when the audience is going to know, all right, from this point forward, the guy, he's the guy, he's the man, he's the captain, he's Captain Kirk, he's a legend. And he always gets into these scrapes, he always takes the biggest risk, and he always comes out with his nose clean. So that's what we're expecting to happen. I Even up to, like, with the red shirt thing, I was... I even had the thought when when Kirk was going into deck 15, I'm like, oh, you know what actually is happening here is he's just condemned everybody on the deck because wherever he is, is safety because he's got the, that shield, that uh, that protagonist armor and everybody else is, is in danger now because the, the meteor or the laser blast is going to go through the deck somehow, <laughs> the main like command deck. That's so interesting. Yeah, Sulu's daughter, we're just going to uh, mm-hmm. sacrifice her. <laughs> first scene yeah that's so interesting you know I I I didn't think that but I think the only reason is because I'm familiar with the movie you know I watched it at least once maybe twice long ago and actually was a movie that we we rewatched at the beginning of quarantine so Hmm. I don't remember having a react like I don't remember having a reaction like oh Captain Kirk is going to save the day because I just remember the movie too well like I just don't remember my first memory of watching a movie hmm interesting if that makes sense also it totally makes sense I I so I have to temper my love of Captain Kirk with my Mm -hmm. distaste of William Shatner (laughs) so I think there's part of me that when he when he that part of the deck disappears and they're like oh he died there's just there's a part of me that's very sad I'm like oh Captain Kirk lost what 
But then there's another part of me that's like, take that, you cocky bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about Amanda. Tell me about your complicated feelings about Captain Kirk and William Shatner. I just, he doesn't have, from what I've read and heard, a great track record of being very humble or Mm -hmm. very gracious towards women. I, I know there was like some panel. I don't remember. I feel like he said some things or cut off the actress who played Janeway. Voyager. I don't know, something. Mm-hmm. I, if I Google it, I'll remember it. Uh, but yeah. It just, it, it's not hard to believe that he would say something misogynistic. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not hard I to. Mean, yeah. I feel like he's a he's a victim of like old white man syndrome. So yeah, and that's not who Kirk is in the movie. Like, yes, he's a womanizer in the movies, but he's like portrayed as this like gallant, chivalrous womanizer. Not that I think Shatner is a womanizer. I just think that he's put his foot in his own mouth too many times there's a lot of kirk in Riker. interestingly enough yes right yes number one he, they call him number one yeah who and okay we're gonna talk about Riker, but i wanted I, I amanda i made a list when i when i at the beginning of this movie when i thought it was gonna be the movie that i was expecting of like the two crews the old crew and the new crew working together like a you know x-men days of future past kind of situation oh yeah no it's yeah, it's more like Old Man Logan, honestly, I think. It, it, yes, with with, uh, <laughs> with John Luke John Picard, Picard is Old Man Logan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's much um, more like that. <laughs> uh, so I was trying to track who are the parallel crew members. So the captains are Kirk and Picard. And of course, we've got two engineers, Scotty and Geordi is the engineer on the, Enter- on the new Enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. We've got Data and... Chekhov, I think, are the comms guys, or maybe maybe Data is Nav. Uh, I'm not quite sure. They didn't. They showed him doing a lot of different things in the movie. Yeah. So, but I think he was comms because at one point he's like searching, scanning for life forms. Do do do. Yes, the scanning for life forms song. I love it. Oh. And then you, we didn't see him in the movie, but we got the Doctor uh, Bones, and then Doctor. We've got two doctors on the new crew, Crusher and Counselor Troy. But who is? In, in like the analog crew, in Captain Kirk's crew, who would be number one? Would that be Spock? Mm-hmm. Okay. He yeah, was also missing Spock. from this movie. Yeah. We get like the skeleton crew of, of Kirk's crew. We don't get, we don't really get to see all of them. We don't see no, who was the mean... other officer on, on his crew. I think she was the comms officer or the weapons officer, but she, she wasn't in this movie either. I was happy to see Chekhov. I was happy to see Scotty. And then I was disappointed we didn't see the rest of his old crew. And I wonder if that has to do with maybe I, the actor who played Bones. I don't know when he died. Okay. Right. I, he may, I'm not sure. Uh, again, Trek, Trek fans are, are <laughs> when I read, yeah, I definitely would have liked more, but I feel like there might be real world reasons why we didn't see them. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? I'm trying to it Google does. it real fast right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense that there'd be like contract issues or like maybe they just weren't interested in doing a movie because they were TV actors. And there could there could be a number of factors for why they couldn't get the whole crew together. Also, the money, the offer might not have been that good. They might not have. I, I, let me see what the budget is real quick. But I, I bet it could have also been a factor is that what they maybe wanted everybody but could only so yeah the the actor who played bones deforest kelly if i'm if i'm reading my wikipedia right he died in 1991 so okay. it's 1966 to 91 so he just wasn't around for 
Yeah. That, but I do, I did wonder why they didn't have George Takai. Like, I know they wrote his, uh, uh, his daughter in Demora. I guess that's, that's a, that was a writer's, that was a, like a, a narrative decision more yeah, so than a real world reason it, because it's called generation. Huh. So like, it makes sense to have one of the original crew members, children. On the ship. So I was expecting Ensign Demora Sulu to have a big hero moment at some point in the movie, oh, or yeah, she you know, like she she wasn't really featured later on. I thought, oh, you know, they're setting her up to sort of take the mantle from Hikara Sulu, and Data definitely got a lot of featured moments. Jordy got some featured moments. Worf kind of got some featured moments, but like this new Ensign, they kind of just introduced her to be there. But that was about it. Yeah, that <laughs> she was, was there. Yeah, no, it would have been. That would have been a nice. That would have been a nice button uh, somewhere later in the movie. For all we know, it might have been a scene that was shot and then discarded. Where it's like, uh, seventy-eight years later, you have this little old lady who was like, "I remember, I was on the the ship that Captain Kirk died." I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you know, but no, that that's she doesn't come back. Uhura, my God, Uhura was the Uhura was the character I was trying so desperately to think of the name of, and she was not in this movie either. No, which I was disappointed about. Yeah. Well, going back to Riker, it's interesting that they make that they the writers on the show made Picard such a different character, such a different type of captain than Kirk. In my opinion, he's the superior of the two. He's more level-headed. He seems smarter in general, more tactical. Less like flying by the seat of his pants. William Shatner's Kirk is a protagonist that seems to know he's the protagonist. It's like he knows he has plot armor in every situation he goes into. And so he's unafraid because he's like, the writer's got my back. I'm not going to die here. We're fine. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree with you. But uh, that's, I think that's reflective of the time periods the two shows were made in. Because mm. you know, when Star Trek, the original came out, I feel like that was very much the the feel people wanted from their action adventure sci-fi, you know, they wanted to know that the good guys were going to win every time. And then when Star Trek generations came out, that was not, I don't, that was not, it's much more philosophical, I think. Well, I mean, not much more philosophical, but I feel like they, they dive into that a little more. Yeah. I feel like the situations that they, they put the next generation crew into lead to more big questions about society and about humans and about like science in general. Whereas the original, it was philosophical in a kind of like Doctor Who sci-fi way, but it was more, hey, look at look at look at what a crazy situation we put this fun cast of characters into. And yes. how are they going to get out of it? Well look at look at in the 60s what Star Trek was sort of replacing in, in terms of cultural fascination. Up until then it was all cowboys and westerns, right? And so Star Trek was, it, it sort of came out of our fascination with NASA and with space exploration itself. And, and kids in, the, in those days went from wanting to be a cowboy, wanting to be Roy Rogers, wanting to be John Wayne, to wanting to be Captain Kirk, to wanting to explore space. It, it is interesting that like, you're right, Kirk is more of that cowboy kind of kick ass, take charge, lead from the front leader. And Picard is more contemplative, strategic, yeah. seems to care, to actually care about his crew more. Kirk definitely cares and loves his crew, but like sees them as an extension of himself 
Whereas Picard sees his crew as like, he's the father and he needs to protect all of that. Like he's the dad of the crew and they all look up to him and depend on him. But then he's got his number one, Riker, who I think they sort of created, the writers maybe sort of created as an outlet for that energy, that Captain Kirk energy. (laughs) Yes, I totally agree. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out given I'm jumping forward to the end of the movie. Go ahead. A little bit. Cause that, cause when they, the two captains meet and they're Picard is trying to convince Kirk to help him solve this problem of Soren. We haven't talked about yet. I should have said that in the overview of the movie. Oh, Soren okay. is this scientist who's trying to blow up planets to move the Nexus so that he can get back in the Nexus because the Nexus is this time has no meaning ripple I don't really understand what the Nexus is, but you really like being there. It's like whatever you wanted in your life, you can have it there. You can fast forward, you can go back. So he wants to get back there and and the two captains wind up there and Picard is trying to convince Kirk to come help him fix this problem. And you get get a little nutshell of their two philosophies (laughs) because we hear, in previous scenes, we hear Picard talk about how when his brother and his brother's wife and his nephew die and he talks about, you know, it was very important for the family legacy to move on. And in this scene where they meet, Kirk talks about how he personally, when he retired, didn't have any purpose. I feel like you saying that it's an extension of him. He was like, I need to sit in that chair. Whereas I feel like Picard is more focused on, who sits in the chair after me? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, because like, he was really concerned about like Renee and that's mm-hmm, his, mm-hmm. his brother's children. So his le- the legacy that carries on rather than his own personal piece of that legacy. It's more about the legacy itself. Yeah. Which yeah, that's a really interesting nuance in the movie is that he is, what he's so upset about, that the news that he gets early on is his brother's children. Because he has long ago given up the dream of himself being the progenitor of the continued family line and carrying on his DNA. And he's given that dream up so long ago. He's invested all of that emotion, all of that hope and and ambition into his nephew. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting too how it's like his, even the children that he cares about the most are not an extension of himself. They're an extension by proxy. Uh, mm-hmm. Like they're related to him, but there, there's that one little extra layer of separation that makes it less egotistical in a way, less narcissistic in a way. And that may, might be a weird way to talk about like having children, but like does it does make a difference with the character. It does make the character a different kind of person that he's not a parent, but he cares that much about this child. Yeah, the, the scene that you're talking about with Picard and Kirk, I wrote down a really funny bit of their dialogue exchange because for one thing, Captain Picard, every time he says the villain's name in this movie, he thinks that he's in Lord of the Rings because he says, help me stop Sauron. You have to help me stop Sauron. (laughs) I didn't notice that. That's very funny. (laughs) And Kirk has this really great line that I think exemplifies exactly who he is and the difference between the two of them when he says, I take it the odds are against us and the situation is grim. (laughs) And he says it so casually and like, Oh, it's a Tuesday, right? I guess. uh, (laughs) Very cavalier. Yeah, very cavalier. So, okay, going back toward to the beginning of the movie, because there there are some things that get set up that I want to I want to dive into at 13 minutes, 34 seconds of this movie. Amanda, have you listened to previous episodes of Robots vs. Dinosaurs? Yes, I've listened to 
a couple, the Jaws one, batteries not included. So you might know what got me so excited. 13 minutes into this movie, after they rescue Malcolm McDee from the ship, they also rescue another character. Yeah. (laughs) Who is a a big favorite of Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Yeah, kind of. Whoopi Goldberg. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we get her early on. Afterwards, I was like, oh, that's right. It's You always want to recast uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito in whatever movie you're talking about. That's right. And this is the second movie that Robots vs. Dinosaurs has covered that has Whoopi Goldberg in it. The first one was Theodore Rex, which stars Whoopi Goldberg. And if you haven't seen it, don't. It's awful. (laughs) And Whoopi Goldberg doesn't want you to see it. But but watch it so you can listen to our review of it because it's really fun. This movie, yes, Guinan shows up. Uh, We are definitely still going to recast later on, but I'm so excited when Whoopi actually shows up in a movie because for one thing, she's a great actress. She's very watchable. She's very, she has this presence that she just, the camera, no matter who she's in a scene with, the camera just like gets to her. Your eyes just track to her. So is this the first, no, it can't be because because this is the end of the show. I was going to ask, is this the introduction of this character to the, the crew? No. No. Um, this is, we're getting, if I remember correctly, like I said, it's been a long time since I watched the entire Star Trek The Next Generation. I feel like this is like the first time we get a look into her like origin story. I think. Yeah. Like you spend so many seasons with this character and then it's boom in this movie. We may, I feel like maybe you find out like what race she was part of, the Alorian. Alorian. Yeah. Right? But other than like, you don't know this connection that she has a connection to the old crew uh, until this movie. I'm fairly sure. Okay. People can That's cool. Check me on that. Please call me out if I'm wrong. No, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds right. Because now, okay, now I'm remembering the sequence of events in the movie. She gets rescued during that scene when Kirk dies. So she's getting rescued by that original crew. So yeah, then, she's getting, yeah. so yeah, this movie is showing us, this is how she came to the, what, what do they call like the Navy? The, what do they call the, the general? Starfleet? Starfleet. That's, this is how yeah. she came to Starfleet in general. And she's this Elorian who apparently they live for centuries, right? They, they just, yeah, they that's live just a, a thing time. about them. Mm-hmm. And they're also, all of them are empaths. Is that right? She's an empath. She's like this bartender um, on the crew and she can sort of sense yeah. people's emotions or. They're not empathic or telepathic the same way that, uh, that, uh, Deanna Troy's race of people is, but yes, they can pick up on stuff. Yes, if I remember correctly. Deanna yes. Troy, that's Counselor Troy. She's like a psychiatrist. Counselor Troy. Yeah, so she comes, uh, oh man, I forget. She comes from a race of uh, species of people that are telepathic. So that's handy she, if you're a psychiatrist. She's, yeah, because she's half, she's half human and half, uh, oh crud. I'm not going to remember the name of the people's but she's half and half so her abilities are more empathetic or empathic than telepathic betazoids all i can i keep seeing uh, her the character of her mom from the series who is a great character one of the best tv characters in history in choice mom but yeah they are somewhat connected into like a sixth sense if you will Hmm. okay so she whoopi is the same race as malcolm mcd yeah. She was literally part of the same crew as him or the same like science 
group or she was with the group of refugees. She was, that, yeah, she was a part. We don't like this movie doesn't tell us like what they did in their form of life on their planet before the Borg, the Borg took over their planet, but they were part of the same group of refugees that were trying to escape when they got stuck in the Nexus. They got stuck in the Nexus and Captain Harriman's crew tries Scotty's idea. Scotty says, there's there's just no way to disrupt a gravimetric field of this magnitude. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then Kirk is like, well, you have an idea though, don't you? And he says, well, I have a theory. Uh, an antimatter discharge directly ahead might disrupt the field. And again, this is when, this is like this beginning scene and I'm still thinking, okay, this is how the red shirt Captain Harriman dies. But wait, <laughs> that doesn't happen. So yeah, they, they rescue part of this crew. We see Malcolm McDowell as like a refugee with like, you know, the blanket around him and he's harried and, and he's saying like, I have to go back. I have to go back. Yeah. I have to let me go back to my, my lab or whatever. And so you, you don't, it, it's a, it's a very... It's a very 90s movie introduction to the villain. I feel like Speed did this. One of the Speed movies. It might have been the second one. I feel like one of the Die Hard movies did this where they they have a moment where where the villain is either legitimately uh, in a group of of refugees that have like survived something and they interact with one of the heroes before they're actually the villain or they're already the villain. And they're posing as one of the refugees to like infiltrate and, and get gain the trust of the good guys. Mm-hmm. So in this case, Malcolm McDowell, we just see him when he, he is crazy. He has lost his mind at this point from, I guess, spending too much time in the, in the Nexus. Yeah, yeah. He, yes. I, so I didn't know, I didn't read it as like crazy. I just read it as that's the best that life is going to get. I got to get back there. Cause like, He's an addict. Yeah. So like they, cause his planet is destroyed. I don't know if they mentioned this in the movie, like he loses everything, like family, uh, your planet, your history. And in the Nexus, you can have all that again. And yeah. if he's this being that's going to live for centuries, I'd, I couldn't imagine living for centuries with the memory of all these people you used to know and they're all dead. And it's it's definitely I mean it's definitely an an analogy for for drug addiction, isn't it? Because and like painkillers and specifically, mm-hmm. because when Picard is trying to figure out his motivations and figure out how to stop him or like what can we what can we offer this guy to get him to go away or stop this madness, uh, Guinan um, says. Soren doesn't care about weapons or power. He just cares about getting back to the Nexus, mm-hmm. and she describes it. It's like club drugs if club drugs was a place. It's like ecstasy if <laughs> ecstasy was a place you could go to and live inside of. She says it was like being inside joy, as if joy was something tangible and you could wrap yourself up in it like a blanket. Never in my entire life have I ever been that content. Uh, she tells Picard, if you go, you're not going to care about anything. All you'll want is to stay in the nexus. That is a, it's a very, it's a very enticing description. You know, it sounds lovely. It sounds like, well, what's the problem, right? It sounds like, okay, this is this place in the universe that anybody can go to and you just get infinite eternal happiness. What could possibly be wrong with that? Uh, and it isn't until we see our hero, Captain Picard, the level-headed, sensible Captain Picard, who sees through to the truth of things, we, when we see him inside of the Nexus, that's when we see how dangerous it really is because all it's giving you is illusions. It's not really, 
it's like plugging into virtual reality to solve all your problems. Yes, which I think is something, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but Star Trek The Next Generation, I feel like does deal with that theme uh, often in the series because there's the episode of the guy who is addicted to the holodeck. Yeah. Um, and they're I in the holodeck when we, when we meet them. Yes, they're movie. in the holodeck when we meet them because they're on a ship uh, pretending Living to be like English or French admirals or whatever. Uh, I love Jean-Luc Picard's fantasies. They're always yeah. so uh, dignified and respectable fantasies. Like when he gets in the Nexus, his fantasy is he's got this family of 18th century children at Christmas time serving Mm -hmm. up like figgy pudding papa. (laughs) Oh, that's right. This is a Christmas movie. I forgot. I I also forgot it was. We were watching, rewatching it last night. I was like, oh, hey, Christmas movie. Um, Yeah, the Nexus is an interesting place. Um, And I, what I, the moment in the Nexus that I find the most interesting is when um, Captain Kirk tries to jump the gorge or the, the canyon to get to this woman that he, left that he feels like he maybe should have stayed with years ago and that's the moment it hits him he's like I wasn't afraid and I don't think we think of Captain Kirk as a as a as a captain who is afraid but he's like that's when he knew that the illusion wasn't real he's like I've done that jump so many times and every time it scared me and this was the one time it didn't and I I just it'd be really hard for me to leave that kind of a place a place with no fear a place Mm. with joy and in fact, you know, we haven't talked about data yet much because in this movie, he puts in the emotion chip that he's been holding yeah. on forever. Uh, he, at one point, is trying, he's got this emotion chip. He failed in rescuing, well, he couldn't rescue Jordy because he was too afraid. And at one point, he's like, I can't do it anymore, Picard. He's like, I want to I be deactivated. I don't want to be conscious. He is so immobilized by fear and guilt and regret regret he's like i'd rather not be conscious and i feel like i i did not make the connection that you that you made about the nexus being like a an analogy for addiction but like that's kind of the same thing like when you get when you get high it's almost like you're not you you've been quote unquote deactivated you're not you're not you're not accessing uh, the full range of human emotion you you've yeah. pinpointed it on one thing yeah and it, and it, it it cut when you're an addict the substance that you're addicted to typically cuts you off from your emotions it makes it impossible for you to process them yeah. because you're putting up a barrier between your conscious self and your actual emotions that are trying to sort of like blend with your conscious self and process themselves. And when you're constantly just putting substances into your body or a literal galactic nexus that you're inside of, um, <laughs> I guess you're putting your body into it, uh, <laughs> you're putting up a barrier between those two things so they can't interact, so you can't actually... Pro- they stay. They basically stay in their two separate tanks and keep building up until the pressure rises and you have some sort of emotional outburst or some other form of expression of, of, and and by the way, listeners, I am not a doctor. This is all my like pop psychology and pop science uh, and, and personal experience with this sort of thing of like addiction and things like that. So that's where I'm speaking on this from. I don't want, I don't want to give anybody the idea that I'm getting, dispensing medical advice, but from personal experience, this is kind of, this movie is a sci-fi pop culture version. It's showing us the allure of addict- addiction and the the dangers of it. I have tons of notes about data. I want to talk about data. Yeah, let's talk, let's about, talk data. about data. This hologram, ho- hollow deck, this hollow deck 
introduction of the crew is so much fun because we go from the the death of Captain Kirk to 78 years later and a wooden sailboat called the Enterprise is sailing the seven seas and all of the this set like 1700s Imperial Navy is on board and it's our crew it's Picard and Riker wearing you know tri-corner hats and, <laughs> and uniforms and Worf is getting promoted to lieutenant commander which is fun and so Data Data and I think it's Dr. Crusher yes. um, are, Data is saying, Doctor, I must confess, I am uncertain as to why someone falling into freezing water is amusing. So this is right after they make Worf walk, walk the plank, Riker retracts the plank, or I'm sorry, removes the plank because there's yeah. a little <laughs> debate about the semantics with remove and retract and makes him fall into the water. And, and Data tells Dr. Crusher, he doesn't understand this, why is everyone laughing? And she says, fun. And Data says, I do not understand. And the doctor tells him to do something unexpected. And that's what humor is. When, when something is unexpected, goes against the norm. And she's like, got it? And he says, got it. And pushes her <laughs> into the ocean. And it's, it is funny. It's really funny. It's hilarious. Funny. <laughs> it is hilarious. Um, they show her like falling in that 90s slow motion action shot. And uh, Worf really tries fun. to catch her and then he also falls. And the best part, the best part is, because this is when we see what good friends Jordy and Data are. The best part of this whole thing is Jordy just walking over. Very, everyone's like reacting variously to this happening. And Jordy just calmly walks over and he goes, Data, that was not funny. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that just makes it 10 <laughs> times funnier. Um, yeah. I love Jordy and Data's yeah. relationship in this movie. And, and you get the sense that it ha- it is very well established. These two have a deep friendship that has a lot of history. So I kind of regret that I didn't watch all of the show up until this point to see what what that all means. Can you speak a little bit about the friendship of Jordy and Data? Like, why, why are they such good friends? It's been a is long time like- since I've watched the entire thing. And from the, I think we didn't even make it all the way through the first season when we started rewatching it. But from what I remember, it's be- their friendship, from what I remember, forms because they're both kind of odd man out kind of thing. Because like in the series, Jordy, along with being blind and having the visor, I don't know what they call the device that helps, the visor. Yeah, I don't know the technical term. So he's got that going on. There's a there's a marked difference. I mean, he's also the only black character, which is not so much a factor, I think, for the narrative plot of the series, because in the universe of Star Trek The Next Generation, they have transcended those things, or they've worked, they're better at it than we are at that point. It's not, race is not a factor, but it is for the people watching the show. Right. I think the writers are cognizant of that. You've got this black character and the android who are, are kind of different life experiences. And also just, I remember in the show from the rewatches, Jordy is always, this is just a fun fact. He seems to always be trying to date and failing horribly. And so like data always trying to do, to understand emotion and then failing horribly at it. I think that's where the basis of their friendship comes from is that, a, they both work closely with each other, but they have some shared experiences of being the odd guy out kind of thing. And they bond over that. And they can yeah. kind of be an ear for each other to listen to. I like that. 
I like that. Yeah, you you can you can instantly see the connection between them. Just like the two actors do a great job of just being really comfortable around each other and open with each other. And we, so after the, like this scene is very funny when they're introduced. And it's also from a screenwriting perspective, it's very much like, okay, this is going to be the start of Data's character arc in this movie. We see the lesson that he needs to learn. We know like what he's going to sort of go through. So the next time we see him, he is deeply troubled by this, this incident that happened. And he's telling Jordy about it. And he's sort of looking at this artifact. It looks like one of the, they have one of the infinity stones and he's thinking about <laughs> using it. It does look like that. <laughs> uh, it and does he says, look like an infinity stone. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking like, oh, maybe it's like the mind stone. Cause that's what they put in vision to make him yeah. go from like Android to like person sort of. But yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, and he says he's been considering it for many months. Now maybe the appropriate time. And Jordy says, I thought you were worried about it overloading your neural net. And Data says, yes, that is true. However, I believe my growth as an artificial life form has reached an impasse. For 34 years, I have endeavored to become more human, to grow beyond my original programming. Still, I am unable to grasp such a basic concept as humor. This emotion ship may be the only answer. Jordy is easily talked into this. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes. I, yeah, this scene is one of those where they, they do this and he helps him put uh, this chip in his brain. And I'm like, nobody thought to clear this with the captain. Nobody thought to say, hey, there's some paperwork as Starfleet officers that we have to follow. Uh, no, we're just going to do this. <laughs> so that brings up the interesting question of how autonomous is data in general? Like how much um, agency? does he have for himself and his own decisions at this point? So I, this is, this is a, a theme that the series I feel explores in several episodes. The one that comes to mind is the one where data creates a child for himself. Uh, he, which, which is another, which is another thing. So th this movie and data contemplating putting emotion chip, it makes me think of, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around all over the place. No, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. It makes me think of Westworld. So spoilers if you've never watched Westworld. But like, to me, when we think about artificial intelligence, understanding emotions and things like humor, it's like, well, what do you need to do some rewiring or programming to give them that capability? Or is it something that they evolve over time? Because like, I feel like in Westworld, those robots, those androids, develop that over so many times of having interactions with with humans and being reprogrammed and being rebooted and being updated whereas uh, data is like no i need this chip it's not going to happen my evolution is is halted but at the same time he does things like desire to have a kid i'm like what android is going to feel like i need to care for a kid that's a very emotional to me is there's no practical logical reason anyone would really have a kid like unless you owned a farm and you needed farm hands like that <laughs> and he doesn't have a farm he doesn't need unpaid labor that's a very emotional you're trying to build a desire. big band and you need a new drummer or like yeah, somebody to play no. the tambourine so i i always i call a little bit of shenanigans. I feel like he's... He has a cat, most, right? He has a cat, a cat named Spot. Again, does he have the cat because he desired companionship? Like, I always wonder how much of Data is mimicking social interactions and human emotion, uh, and how much of his, is it him 
doing another tiny step in his evolution because the like the, the desire to for him to create a kid like I feel like that's a step and you didn't need an emotion chip to want that but I know there's other situation where he's like I'm just going through the motions I, love, <laughs> I don't know why I love this question I love that I love this I want to dig more into this because okay Amanda I've I did not ask you this question up front but this is a question that I ask every guest on the show what is your definition of a robot? When somebody says the word robot, what's the first image that comes to mind? Do you have like an example of a robot that you think of first? And and also like, I want to get into the definition of like robot versus android versus cyborg. So what is your definition? I knew this question was coming. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know that I have a concrete answer, except I, maybe it's why this movie popped into my brain because for me robots are constructed and designed to maybe to help to be helpers to do jobs they don't necessarily have emotion or are aware of their own mortality and I think to answer the second part of your question that's the distinction between robots and androids it's like once once something has stepped into the realm of android there's still a robot, but a robot is not an android because androids are starting to understand, oh, I, I may live forever. I may not. I understand a concept of mortality. I understand a concept of sentience. I don't know that one example pops into mind for robot, but yeah, anything that helps do attack, like the computer on the enterprise, the mm. computer they're always talking to, that's a, that's a robot to me, but that yeah. computer is not aware the way data is aware, or at least... I don't know that they ever tell it. They don't, that's never explored. Doesn't seem so. So interestingly enough, that, that is something Star Trek, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that is something Star Wars goes into with the newest uh, Han Solo film where. Yes. Oh, we just rewatched that. <laughs> literally her brain is the only part of her that they can salvage after she gets damaged in a battle. So her brain gets put into the ship's computer or becomes the ship's computer for the millennium of the millennium Falcon. So mm-hmm. in that world the computer sort of is sentient and is a robot um, that formerly had a body and now is the ship so yeah Yeah. who knows in star trek how how self-aware the ai that runs the ship is or that runs their pd their blackberries that they carry around the tricorders that's what they're called mr tricorders yeah Um, (laughs) yes Okay, so data we you mentioned earlier data was built. We we see an episode in the show, I guess, where we find out yeah. why data was built and who built him. Why, so what was his yes. original intended purpose? Oh my goodness. So I don't know that we we see it, but we do crap. I just had it pulled up on Wikipedia. <laughs> well, sub question to that, how how does he end up in Starfleet? He gets found. If I remember correctly, this doctor, whose name I don't remember because I did not have the page pulled up, creates data actually in another robot, a couple, I think there's a series of them, but data to be, I don't actually remember why. I don't know if data had a purpose or if this scientist was just like, hey, I want to see if I can create artificial life. Hmm. But he gets the, the civil, the society doesn't last. I think it ends and Starfleet finds data if I remember correctly. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Here I have it. 
Yeah. Data was found by Starfleet in 2338 as the sole survivor on Omicron Theta in the rubble of a colony left after an attack from the crystalline entity. Don't remember what that was. He's a synthetic life form with artificial intelligence designed and built by Dr. Noonien Soong in his own likeness. So that's what the doctor looks like, the scientist. He looks like Data. <laughs> okay. So this is this is an interesting yeah. thing with movie robots, with sci-fi robots. They are often built literally in the image of their creator, and so here's here's the thing that I always find very fascinating is when we see the creator of a robot, when, the, when a movie or a piece of fiction, science fiction, introduces us to a robot as a character, and later on we see their actual creator, their literal creator, very often we find out that like they have programmed the robot to have only the aspects of themselves that they find ideal. So... In AI, for example, Artificial Intelligence, the 2001 movie, almost all of the robots in that movie, they are compassionate. They are they have emotions. They have positive emotions. They care about people. They are caretakers. They make jokes. They try to make people smile and laugh, they try to make people feel warm and comfortable. But they do not have the other extreme of emotions. It's like we only limited their, their emotional capability to emotions that we see as positive, that we see as mm-hmm. idealistic. So we sort of build robots to be these idealistic versions of ourselves, and we try to leave out the negative aspects. And so a lot of that manifests in this movie when when Data does get the emotional chip in him. We start to see, we start to find out what Data actually wants, what Data, his actual inner desires are. And I think that is very fascinating because you don't often get that with a robot. You, okay, so like when he... (laughs) Shortly after puts the inhibitor uh, emotion chip in him, Whoopi, they go to Whoopi's bar and Whoopi gives Data and Jordy a space bong filled with Coquito. And she says it's like something <laughs> something new from Frocus 3. Um, and I really wanted to drink whatever was in there. And <laughs> Data takes a sip of it and he says, I believe this beverage has produced an emotional response. First of all, Data, same. <laughs> and he says, I am uncertain. Yes, that's it. I hate this. It is revolting. And Whoopi offers him more, and he very enthusiastically says, yes, more. He does. (laughs) Uh, So Data discovering alcohol is is very fun. But then later, so we see this joy. We see this extreme joy. And then later we see this extreme sadness and extreme fear when he and Jordy are ambushed by Malcolm McDee. Malcolm McDee shows up looking like uh, Kiefer Sutherland in The Lost Boys. And he sneaks up on <laughs> he sneaks up on Jordy and Data when they're trying to fix something. During actually during this exchange, this was another question I had for you, Amanda. And it's okay if you don't know the answer to this, but Data references, he starts laughing out of nowhere. And he references the Farpoint mission. And the way he's talking about it, and it must have been an episode of the show. And he says, uh, Commander Riker made a joke, the clown can stay, but the Ferengi in the gorilla suit has to go. And he said, Data is saying, this, this was the punchline to a joke. And seven years later, I finally get it. <laughs> so do, yeah, I love do, you know, Jordy's do you remember any details about the, the Farpoint mission or that joke or anything? No? No, I don't. I, sh- you know, that's a, I'm, sh- but I'm sh- knowing Star Trek and the, the vast history, I would bet money that it's an actual thing in an episode somewhere. Like if you, if we Googled it right now. 
Yeah. Like I would, I would feel good about that bet. I'm, I'm willing to, as, as a very casual fan, I'm willing to take that bet. Like I'm willing to. That's to the world of Star Trek. The they like bet. those little Easter eggs in there. And so. it's, it's, it's a fun callback because it probably was literally seven years ago and it probably was an actual line of dialogue. So it, this is a very rewarding, I think, Easter egg for if you're a longtime fan. This is a great little uh, bit of dialogue because it's funny on its own, but also if you know exactly what they're talking about. It just gives it that extra layer. Um, so then Data tries, Data makes a joke, which is delightful. And <laughs> he says, they're trying to get through this uh, door that won't open. And he says, I believe I can reverse the polarity by attenuating my axial servo. Amanda, I have a question for you real quick. Uh, as a Star Trek fan, what do most of the words in that sentence I just said mean? <laughs> <laughs> but reverse the axial Servo? Yeah. What was? What I do you say? They. I believe I can reverse the polarity by attenuating my axial servo. So I don't know what an axial servo is. I just assumed that was a, I don't know, a part, a body part of Data's. I don't know. Obviously, sure. it's not. He, he does. <laughs> he pulls. He does pull uh, his forearm panel uh, off. Mm -hmm. uh, but the polarity. That's that's the the magnetism that keeps the door closed. Obviously. And then when he opens it, he says, uh, you could say I have a magnetic personality. Huh? And then he, he does this Mr. The open tricorder. Sesame joke. Yes, the open sesame joke. Open and he does sesame. Mr. Tricorder and like, sing, like does an impression. And then he does an impression of Captain Picard. He's like, make it so. <laughs> it's amazing. It's the best. Yeah, Brettner, Brett Spiner's performance here is so good. And then it turns real creepy because he starts to sort of go over the top and his face starts to deform. And he looks like someone dying from Joker gas. And like his his smile is getting creepily wide and, and weird. So it's so creepy. Uh, he says the emotion chip has overloaded my positronic relay. And I will say for all of like the, the science speak, and I, I want to give Star Trek a lot of credit for everything we were talking about before. Like it definitely, there's research behind it. There's real science behind it. This word positronic stands out to me because we recently reviewed the movie by Centennial Man with Robin Williams. And that is based on an Isaac Asimov property called the Positronic Man. And there's a lot of references in Bicentennial Man to his Positronic brain, which is the same type of brain CPU that Data has. Data has a Positronic brain, which I just think is an interesting little like Asimov connection with Data. Because he, he's very clearly an Asimov type robot. Like I don't know if Data ever explicitly talks about the three laws of robotics. But again, if I had to put my money on it, I'd say data is beholden to those three laws, right? Like he would not harm a human unless he had to, or unless ordered uh, in defense of another human. I'm very much uh, fast forwarding through the three laws. But, but I do think like they all generally apply to data explicitly or implicitly. So yeah, McD shows up, Malcolm McD shows up and he, and he ambushes them. And Data, for the first time ever, has to experience fear. And it really affects him. The thing that I, I feel like how I interpreted the scene, it's not so much I think that his fear is that great because Data knows logically I'm stronger and I'm faster than this guy. Like I've seen Data in previous episodes take out machines that are super freaking fast that no human mm. could take out and he doesn't have a scratch on him to me it's it's that it's 
the very first time, like I can't even remember the first time I experienced fear. Like we don't have beings that were born with emotions. I don't have a logical memory of that. Like I couldn't say, oh, this is the first time I was ever afraid is when I was learning to walk and uh, I fell flat on my face. Like we don't have that memory. So I couldn't imagine having the faculty that I do now and the awareness that I do now of all the things that could potentially go wrong and be experiencing fear for the first time. It's like, I don't, I, I wish I Googled this, but I think one teenagers do a lot of dumb shit because their brain literally is not capable of playing the tape forward, so to speak, and telling them all the things that could go wrong when they take risks. But taking risks is a very important step in our development as human Mm. beings and our brain development. And so it's like data bypasses those teenage years, so to speak. He doesn't get the small doses of fear that we get in our adolescence without the ability to think it forward. He's just thrust into, hi, have this supercomputer brain. And I can, he's probably doing like a Dr. Strange thing, like all the possibilities that could go wrong in his head. Like, oh, if I go this way and Soren points the gun that way and I could do this, but the ship will blow up and Jordy will still be dead. Like he's probably going through all of those things Yeah. Which when the rest of us are experiencing fear for the first time, we don't have those. Like, I don't even know that babies experience fear the same way that we do. Like, I don't think that they start walking and are like, oh, I'm afraid because babies are pretty. They'll do anything. They'll put anything in their mouth. They'll go for it. They don't know. Yeah, it's that's interesting that we're not we're not not sure if babies experience fear. They definitely experience extreme ranges of emotion though because they obviously experience joy when they laugh at something that doesn't there's no reason they would laugh at it like there's it's not funny um they're just a dumb baby and they'll laugh at anything (laughs) (laughs) but like you know what i mean they're not they're not um the best comedy critics but it's really easy to make a baby laugh so i can imagine it's really easy to make a baby actually scared and when they're crying when they're screaming that might be what it is it might be hunger it might be a number of things but I think one of those things that it might be is they're terrified of something in their environment that they can't control because um, there's very little that a baby can control. A capable android that knows its capability, that has demonstrated its capability in the past, suddenly getting this new input, this new emotional input. He's looking at Malcolm McD's gun and he's like, oh, that thing ain't, that thing ain't sent to stun, that's for sure. And so, yeah, his brain is probably doing that. Like you said, Dr. Strange thing, he's processing, I could go this way and try to save Jordy, but then this might happen, or I could try to, you know, do something and then Jordy might get killed as a result. For the first time learning about or experiencing your brain logically talking you out of doing something because of the risk. And and it's the teenager thing is a really interesting uh, point that you brought up because you're right. The, the survival, the, the, perpetuity of human evolution relied on when we were living in in the plains hunting our food it relied on having ambitious capable young adolescents getting that signal from their brain telling them go no chase that thing chase that big animal so that we can all eat it or so that we can all survive or you can fight that tiger because you have a stick in your hand go go give it a, give it a shot 
All you have to do is believe that you're stronger than that tiger. So, so give it a shot. If you don't try, you won't know. And we have these weird instincts that drive us towards those foolish decisions because sometimes in the like small percentage of, of a chance that they pay off, it's epic, it's legendary, and it does a lot for our species and for our development and for our advancement. So we are wired to want to take those risks, but when you never have that wiring, and then suddenly you're faced with the fear of mortality. It's it's interesting that like your brain would not be capable of action that you just get frozen by it. Your fight or flight response, which is manifest in freezing. Well, I also wonder, I was thinking of fight or flight, like it's the first time he's experiencing fight or flight. I also think that fear is an emotion that we develop. It's not necessarily something that, happens and I think in our brains yeah. naturally like joy or uh or contentment fear is something I think that develops over a series of oh this didn't work and I got hurt so like I wouldn't I wouldn't even know what it would feel like to go from a state of no fear to lots of fear and not having any of that learned experience of how it developed like you know I can look at the things that I'm afraid of and I can go oh I know why I'm afraid of that because of this thing that happened to me. That's that's interesting that fear is something we learn. Cause like, if you give a kid, like a four-year-old, a microphone, they're just gonna sing whatever song pops into their head into the microphone. They're not gonna think about anything. They're not gonna be self-conscious. They're, they're not gonna think like, is this gonna weird? Is, are people gonna think I'm weird when I do this, right? And, and you sort of, over time, learn the results of my actions and my choices and behaviors, get, they get a reaction from the people around me. And for some people, that's it's a rewarding reaction. But for, for if it's negative to you, if you find the reaction to your behavior from other people in society negative, if you find if you interpret it as negative, you're going to become fearful of expressing certain things or doing certain actions over time, performing in certain ways. And that is a learned thing. That's not an intrinsic thing because kids are inherently bold and ambitious and they just try. They're experimental. So yeah, we do kind of lose that over time. It's, it's interesting that we, a lot of us, sort of lose that, that sense of like childhood wonder and lack of fear over time. I, <laughs> I wrote down literally the entire conversation between <laughs> Data and John Luke Picard, I'm not going to read the whole entire thing, but I feel like it's one of the most important conversations in the movie. Top Goss with Trash Comedy is the podcast where we trade sweet, sweet facts like they're dirty little pieces of gossip. We're a New York-based comedy team, and we're joined each week with a funny, delightful friend. After each person shares their facts, we read those facts from... Oh my god, that's not hot. That's as cold as the coldest ice you've ever seen. To, oh my god, that's so spicy. My mouth is gone. So if that made sense to you, then please join us on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. I When they introduced Data in this film, in his tricorner hat, in his 1776, we got this android, space android, in a in an old-timey naval uniform, which is a great visual and a great way to introduce these characters. Data, I, 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 I mentioned this, we immediately get to see a little hint of like, this is what his character arc is going to be through this movie. So I kind of expected that to be wrapped up quickly, 
or to sort of happen as a B or C plot, but it was really a major plot point in, in the whole entire movie. And it was a lot of, it was a lot of what led Picard to make the decisions that he makes. Because Picard goes through the nexus. Picard has this, this experience of fake Christmas and you know, all of that. But this happens, that, that happens to him later. Prior to that, he's just filled with all of this regret about his, his brother and his nephew dying. Mm-hmm. And he just has all of this remorse and regret. And he can't go on. He can't face what's really bothering him. He shuts himself into his cabin. He makes Riker do everything. Counselor Troy has to come and sort of visit him and be like, hey, something's obviously wrong. You want to talk about it? And he's sort of like, no, nothing's wrong, but let's talk. Yeah, let's talk. I'm glad you're here because I want to talk. And they start talking. <laughs> and Yeah, it's honestly, I think it's like might be one of the first times we see Captain Picard completely incapacitated by emotion because like you were saying earlier he's the level-headed captain he's not the one who usually lets his emotion influence his decisions but this is a moment we see him completely like I don't know how to deal with these emotions I don't know how to process them I don't know how to go on and I think Riker and uh, Troy are completely like, our captain is broken what do we do Mm. (laughs) it's it's an interesting scene well, what I what I like about Troy is she knows he's not broken. He's going through something human, and I'm an expert on this. I'm I'm you know I am this is I'm a counselor. This is my job. So I'm recognizing what's wrong with him, and it's fixable as long as I. That's why I why my job exists. As long as I do my job for him, I can fix the captain. I can make him able to make decisions again. <laughs> and part of part of that is this conversation that he has with Data. I think it opens up him to realize like what he's going through because data you you brought this up earlier and it is such a great moment. It's, I think Brett Spiner, I always like Brett Spiner. This is, I think his best, this is him at his absolute best. He says, captain, I cannot continue with the investigation. I wish to be deactivated until Dr. Crusher can remove the emotion chip. And Picard asks, are you having some kind of malfunction? Data says, no, sir. I simply, I simply do not, and like underlines, simply do not have the ability to control these emotions. Sir, I no longer want these emotions. Again, data, same. I feel you <laughs> heard. Yes. <laughs> yes. But Picard drops this gem. And, and I think this is one of those things that happens in movies a lot where it's like he's saying this out loud and it's the character realizing this about himself because he's saying it out loud for the first time. Part of having feelings is learning to integrate them into your life, learning to live with them. No matter what the circumstances, you will not be deactivated. You are an officer aboard this ship, and I require you to perform your duty. That is an order, Commander. And Data says, yes, sir, I will try, sir. Picard comes back with another gem. Sometimes it takes courage to try, too, and courage can be an emotion. All of that is... I think the best dialogue in this movie, I think it's the theme of this movie. I think it really encapsulates everything that the movie is, the story that the movie is trying to tell us, both about Captain Picard and about the whole crew and about humanity and about escaping from your pain, escaping from your trauma, escaping from those emotions. Don't allow you to, it it makes, it makes so you can't actually allow yourself to experience the other extremes of pure joy So you can experience this nexus version of joy. You could take a drug, 
you could go into the nexus, you could do something to artificially induce that feeling of euphoria. And in this movie, it's the literal nexus that does that for you. Mm-hmm. But, but Captain Picard, when he goes through that experience, he has the mind, presence of mind to realize this is an illusion. This is not as good of a feeling as the real thing. It's just a synthetic version of joy. If I want to experience real joy ever again, I have to allow myself to experience real pain. I have to allow myself to process the loss and the death of my brother and my nephew. I have to let myself feel the the opposite extreme in order to feel the things I want to feel. And so he sort of realizes that through Data's journey, because that's what Data goes through. Data, until he has this emotional chip, he's on a very limited wavelength of the emotions he's capable of. Like there's an extreme ceiling that's very low and an extreme basement of emotions that's very high. And he's very much, if it was a, just to put numbers on it, like it's, it's a one to negative one, whereas most humans are on like a 100, like 100 joy to like negative 100 pain, right? Mm-hmm. Data's only capable of like a, such a small middle uh, ground of those emotions until this emotional chip opens him up, expands him to being more capable of more emotions. And again, that's also, that's an experience a lot of people describe the first time they take ecstasy or the first time they take like LSD or psilocybin or something like that, is that in a way it's actually unlocking certain emotional extremes that they have been burying away because of their programming, their, their life experience up to this point. So again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not encouraging anybody to take club drugs or ecstasy. I'm not encouraging that. Uh, I'm just talking about the, a lot of different experiences, a lot of different human experiences. Um, what was the name of the doctor in the 70s who was like in, encouraging people to take acid and LSD to unlike, I can't, that's like, I know you're talking about you're, it, yeah. you're like, I am not that, I'm not that person. Don't right. do <laughs> Listen, do your own research, be responsible. Adults. Um, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But, uh, but yeah, I do. I like, it's, it's, it's a little surprising to me how important of a character data was in this movie. And I'm very glad that he was. It's, it's like, you could, you could almost see him as a character being limited because of the fact that he can't go through these extremes of emotion. But in a lot of ways, like the writers use that to their advantage. But then when you introduce this new element, the emotional chip, it just expands it even further, the capabilities of what you could do with this robot character. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of my wondering how much is data in an evolution and how much is data pre-emotion chip mimicking or trying to recreate those social cues is this the fact that we have a human being playing an android and over this course of the series, the writers are like, well, we have to, he can't just, (laughs) you know, data can't just be this automaton the whole time. That's not interesting to watch. So I'm like, how much of it is purposefully narrative and then how much of it is we are human actors and human writers creating this thing that other people are going to enjoy watching. If you watch the episode where Tasha Yar dies and Data is trying to say, oh, I think he's experiencing some amount of grief. I mean, Mm. uh, but it's not the same the way the other crews are, but it's like, how much is that written in and how much is that? This is a TV show that people are watching and we want to see, we want to see beings grapple with some semblance of emotion. And we, so we see him, we see him stressed out by performing. He's 
Picard is telling him, giving him instructions on like tracking this nexus and figuring out like where it's going to be and and what Malcolm McD is trying to do with it. And so he's like, you know, following orders and typing into a computer or whatever. But that's the moment when he's like, listen, Captain, I, I don't want to do this anymore because the mission that he's on at that point is like finding, investigating these bad things that are happening and they're giving him bad feelings. Later on, he gets to scan for life forms and Data loves scanning for life forms. <laughs> scan for life, life forms, forms. Life forms. Yeah. <laughs> he loves it. He gets so much joy out of it. And I think, you know, the arithmetic there is pretty easy to do. Like he loves the idea of we are on a mission to rescue people. This is what this ship is for. This is what our, our, our what do they call it? The first direct, the prime directive Yes, the um, prime directive to explore, but not interfere with li- other life forms uh, and species that are not at a certain point in their technological evolution. Part of the prime directive is you're not allowed to make contact with any civilizations that haven't reached a similar you know, point of technological advancement because it throws their evolution off course. It's ah. not the course that they were set on. Uh, Makes observe, sense. Yeah. Yeah, so he, um, when they, when they find Viridian Four, uh, they say it supports pre-industrial humanoid society. They say there's 230 million people or beings, life forms, life forms on this planet. That goes into directly into that. They support they're pre-industrial, right? So this is exactly their mission. This is exactly what they. Not only have they discovered one, but it's in danger. And they have a chance to protect them from something that they don't even know is going to destroy them. So Data gets a lot of joy out of that mission and being part of that mission. So another added layer to this joy. So part of the prime directive is, if I'm remembering this correctly from the episodes I remember, they are able to protect. So the Visperidian 4 would be a, a society that they're not allowed to change the course or interact with, really. They're observing because they haven't, they're pre-industrial. But the only reason I think they're able to sa- help try and save this planet is because there is a member from their society changing the course. So if like, if the star in the Viridian system was naturally about to explode, they might not do anything about it. Like, cause Ooh. I do, I do Brutal. remember an episode. There is an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they, they get into that that conundrum like there is a I forget which episode it is but we rewatched it recently and there's some members of the crew are like we have to do something and other members of the crew are like no it goes against our prime directive we're not allowed to interfere or or it's the episode where Will Wheaton's character does something on this planet and he's sentenced to death because he he broke the law of the planet and hmm. there's a big there's a big to do between Beverly Crusher and Captain Picard because technically, they're not allowed to interfere. They should leave it alone. Yeah, it's it's a big, mm. a big source of philosophical fodder for the show, the prime directive, and how much they're allowed to interfere and how much they're not, or when they're allowed to make contact and all that, if I'm remembering correctly. So That's like this moment, the fact that they that it's clear they are able to do something because this Soren character, who is a part of their a refugee they enveloped into their society, who's at the same level of technological advancement they've already made contact is changing the course of the nexus therefore changing the course of this planet yes they can clearly do something there's no debate happening over whether it fits the prime directive so 
that is probably an extra source of joy for data because he's like, this is not a gray area of <laughs> moral ambiguity. This is something we can definitely do because it's a problem we created in the first place. So Yeah, so like if, yeah. if the Enterprise saw that the dinosaurs were about to go extinct from a meteor, they wouldn't do anything about it. But they, if they, they saw that we were like going to blow ourselves up with a nuke that we built, they might step in and be like, hey, idiots, we're taking the keys away. <laughs> maybe. Don't blow yourselves maybe. up. Maybe. Because, yeah, maybe, maybe. Because this is a movie hopping a little bit, but they, they also answer this question in first contact a little bit because uh, they can't they can't do they can't do something until anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> this is a one small bit of a thing where this movie, Star Trek, has a much lower body count than Star Wars. I will say, like, um, if we're gonna compare the two at all. Star, uh, this movie has an all, what I wrote down was an Alderaan level explosion happen where we see uh, <laughs> Data gets this cool moment where he sees like this bad thing is about to happen. He's just like, oh shit. And it's very funny coming from a robot. <laughs> and yeah, this Alderaan level ex- explosion, we see the all of uh, Viridian 4 blowing up because Malcolm McDee's plan, which is a cool plan, it works. The plan, just to break it down, because I, 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 I think if I wasn't taking notes and like writing down everything happening in the movie, I might not have caught this because it's very, it's a very intricate plan, but it's cool when you know all the moving pieces of it. He is not trying to journey to the Nexus. He wants to bring the Nexus to where he is. And in order to do that, he needs to destroy a star to create basically a black hole that has enough gravitational pull to pull this nexus closer. And it's all this like, wow, you have to do all of that as a means to an end. And, and it's like, there, there are all of these remote pieces of it, these, these separate layers between him and his goal and all these things he has to do to achieve this goal. And I think that's to make it uh, where in his mind, in Dr. Tolian Saren's mind, it, it, it lets him remove himself from the the evil of what he's doing. It lets him have like a barrier between, he's not directly in his mind killing a bunch of people, right? He's blowing up a star. There's no people on that star. He's just blowing up the star. The result of that is that a lot of people are going to die. So he sort of gives himself a pass, right? He sort of, the ends justify the means to him. And... He's, he just becomes very unconcerned about the destruction that he has to cause to achieve his goal. Ooh, yeah. I never thought about it that way, that he's compartmentalizing like that. I I maybe was focused a little more on like emotions being the theme because in my mind, because he has the line where he, uh, where, when Picard is trying to talk him out of it, he says, you know, there was a time where I wouldn't have hurt anyone, but then the Borg came and obliterated mm. his planet. Mm-hmm. So to me, he has been perpetually stuck in grief for the past 78 years it's like he was in grief he was rescued he experienced the pure joy of the nexus and then he went back to being in that just i mean i i it's a very it's a it's a horrible place to be when you're in that much grief you know yeah i remember i remember when my grandparents died within six months of each other and it's like i would have not cared about doing bad things to other people during that time too. Like I probably, I probably stole some subway seats from several people or didn't Mm. give my seat up to various little old ladies. 
because uh, I just wasn't paying attention and I was so focused inward and I was so focused on my own pain. It, the way I interpreted that is Soren never, he never went past that. He's been in this perpetual, which when you think of it, you're like, come on, grow up, evolve. But at the same time, if he's this race of people that lives so long, they did, did they develop the same processing of emotions that we do? Like if you had, if you had so much more time, how much more would you, I don't want to say wallow in certain emotions, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think a lot of us, like going back to what Captain Picard was telling Data, it's like, eventually we have to pick ourselves up and move on because that's what we have to do. We have a finite yeah. amount of time. If we don't, then we're stuck there. Yeah. But and Soren we'll never has find the, joy in new Yeah. Soren has the luxury of being stuck there because he's going to live for a very long time, much longer than any of these other characters. Yeah. yeah. He, it, the, yeah, it's, it's almost like he's going through sort of the opposite of what data was going through or the same thing, but in the opposite direction, because it's like yes. data went from not experiencing anything to experiencing a ton of emotions. He later says over 261 distinct emotional states and Saren and also Guinan. And I'm glad that we get Guinan as like a, a counter to Saren because we see a reasonable Alarian that has the same experience, but doesn't become a villain, doesn't get so tunneled into their own depression and and grief that they want to take it out on everybody else or that they want to insulate themselves from from having any bad feelings ever again and so yeah he goes from this world where they live near the nexus and they're constantly experiencing extreme joy to having that taken away from him what do you think what do you think makes Guinan able to process it in a much healthier way than Saren that's an interesting question I don't I'm not, I don't know. First of all, they don't, I don't think they live near the Nexus. They just get trapped there on their way from getting rescued from oh. the Borg obliterating. Their, their amount of time in the Nexus, Soren's and, and Guinan's, is not a lot. Oh, I thought their society was like based around the Nexus. No, no. They're these two transport uh, ships that have these refugees on them that were traveling from their, they were rescued from their planet going someplace else gotcha. and they got stuck. So like, I mean, they were maybe there for a couple of hours at most while the, the ships started to disintegrate in oh, at most. They could have been there from like kick rocks then. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like he, he wasn't there very long, although in the Nexus, because there is no time in the Nexus, right? it may have felt, he may have felt like he was there for much, 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 much longer. But I don't know. I I feel like it just is a matter of chance because they do, do correct me if I'm wrong, they talk about, no, they don't. I'm remembering other movies I'm watching. I was like, did they talk mm. about fate in this movie? Or is that, another, is that another movie I watched recently? <laughs> yeah, for all, for like the bit of time travel that's in here, they really don't talk about like fate or destiny all that much. That's not, yeah. you're right that like emotions are the theme and that's what yeah. they're focusing on. Yeah, no, I think the the way, I think the way Guinan and Soren process it is just a matter of who they are as individuals. The same way, going along with your analogy, it's the same way it's like one person could be prescribed an opioid to manage mm. pain and they might be fine. And another person who is prescribed an opioid, who is also prescribed maybe even a shorter amount of time, that's it. 
Like that's, it's just, it's a matter of our biochemistry, nature and nurture combined. So I think that's, you know, how biochemistry and how they were raised, Guinan just had a better chance at being able to forget that experience, whereas Soren does not. Yeah, I wonder if maybe it's the difference between their jobs, because Guinan is a bartender. So maybe if that's what she was, that's somebody, that's that's a profession where you interact with humanity constantly. You're always interacting with people at their best when they're celebrating and people at their worst when they're drowning their sorrows. And you get, you get, you get this full experience. You get to interact with so many different people in various states. Whereas Soren was a scientist. He worked in a lab. He worked in a sterile environment, right? So he probably, his range of emotion was already limited and already kind of he was probably very like sciencey and focused on his job and focused on his experiments and stuff like that and not really having a full range of experience himself. So then when he went into the Nexus, this might've been the most joy that he's ever felt. And whereas Guinan has probably had more varied experiences in her life. So that's just my fan theory on it. I don't know if there's, I haven't watched enough Star <laughs> Trek to support any of that, but just from what I got in this movie, just from the dialogue I got in this movie and what I know about Guinan from like a few episodes of the show, that's my theory that I'm working with. <laughs> Not a bad theory. Um, <laughs> speaking of callbacks to, to Star Trek stuff, there's a point where a bunch of refugees are coming onto the Enterprise and there's a bunch of kids one of them is carrying what looks to me like a pet tribble. Is that a, is that possible that one of the kids had a pet tribble? They were carrying this white fluffy no. thing. Is this in the beginning? No, this is this is when Viridian Four is getting blown up, and oh, so they like oh, rescue so forty seven of the hundred and fifty people or something like that. They rescue no the so no that's no that's earlier. But th- the, this is the kids you see are kids that live on the Enterprise. So the Enterprise That's is, Okay, thank you. Sorry. The Enter- no, <laughs> when they're no, detaching the saucer. This is when yeah, they're detaching so, the saucer from the rest of the ship. Yeah, the saucer is where all the living quarters and the recreational stuff is. And then the, I don't know what you call it. It's where the show takes place. <laughs> yeah, that's where the show takes place. And then I feel like the, the bridge is also on the saucer. But then all the engineering stuff and the uh, weapons, and most of the weapons are on the, the trunk of the ship. She, I don't remember seeing a triple, but again, Easter egg. They do have the scene where she drops her teddy bear. There's a teddy bear there. Yes. Uh, and but, they're, yeah, it's one of those kids in that group. And one yeah. of them has yeah. this like little white thing that just looks like a ball of hair, a ball of white hair. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I just remember like what I've read about tribbles and this episode where they multiply like gremlins, apparently. Oh, yeah. They're like, that, that's tribbles. the problem. Yeah, they're the best. With the trouble with tribbles. It. The trouble with tribbles. Yeah, they they multiply like uh, bunnies on steroids. Uh, they fill the ship up at some point in the first Star Trek. <laughs> so then is it feasible that they would let a kid just have one casually as a pet? Or it must be something else. It must be something that just yeah. looks like a tribble. If there is a tribble, then it's like a stuffy. Like a, like a okay. Tribble. But I wouldn't, again, sense. they like these kind of Easter eggs in the show. Um, yeah, I, I, this is... I bet it's a knowable thing. It's a thing that like we could find out like, and that's what I love about Star Trek. It's like, there's all these little Easter eggs and they do reference something that has deep lore behind it. What were you going to say, sorry? I was going to say, going back to the whole, the, the ship and the way it's constructed and the fact that it's a place where officers live and work, 
the fact that both captains, Kirk and Picard, because both both versions of the Enterprise were built that way, like long range missions where your family could live and it like it supported it's like a little town in mm-hmm. a ship, basically, on this galaxy cruiser that's that can defend itself in a state of war, but it's a, a science ship, basically. There's no excuse for these two men not to have had families if they didn't want them. Like I was watching, I was watching this last night, and I was like, it is a load of shit. Like, and, and it's, it, they, they, they boohoo about this fact. I'm like, you, you have literally the best, the best possible situation to pursue both your career and have a family. It's not like you're deployed in Afghanistan or anything like that. You're literally on this science driven galaxy starship with everything that your family could ever want and all like you're just traveling the universe like yes you they're not going to be in one location which might be a problem for some people but that's something that's a conversation you have when the when when you're so it's i feel like it drives home more so that this is a personal failing on not maybe not a failing but there was there's there was not it wasn't like oh, it was something I wanted, but it was something that I was never in a position to attain. It was a personal choice that both these men made, that they, they, had, they had every resource. They could have had that in this life, but they never made the time for it. They didn't pay attention to it. They didn't pay attention to how much time they had left or they were just so preoccupied with whatever. It's like, if you wanted it, you could have had it, but you never did it, which I think is a very human thing to do. Like things we want, but we never make enough time for them. That's a thing we do as humans. Two, count, two small counterpoints to that. I, I definitely agree that like they have the resources. They, have, they could have made that choice if they wanted to make that choice. But let's say you're Captain Picard and you're, you're, you are the captain of the starship that's exploring the outer reaches of the galaxy and you're going into danger a lot and you've just had a baby. You might be more hesitant to go on a mission that takes you directly into danger or farther away from Starfleet command where you have more resources if something goes wrong. Also, let's say like whoever, whoever it is that his spouse is going to be, they would have to either be 100% invested in the mission of this ship, or if they're a junior officer, they're going to want command of a ship eventually. So they're going to have to leave this ship to go command their, their own ship. And that's going to break up the family. So I can see a lot of reasons why Picard would still want to have a family, but also still make the choice of giving that up, even though it does, even though it would could be convenient and fit his lifestyle, he would still like weigh, well, there's still, there's still negative aspects if I do it. So I'm still not going to, and just be satisfied with my brother's family. Yeah. I I think that's very nice and kind of you. And those are all very logical reasons. But another thing about the show is that there is a constant will they, won't they, between Beverly Crusher and Jean-Luc Picard. And so it's like, this is another easy out for you. Like, she's already got a fully grown kid that you could adopt and literally be your own, (laughs) like, not necessarily adopt because it's his friend's kid and there's a lot going on there. Um, And like, yeah, I do think those are all logical reasons. But again, like, there are other people on the ship who have all grappled with those choices. There are probably other high-ranking officers on that ship who have families there or who have had to face a decision of, my spouse, my partner has gotten this commission that would be a great career move for them. So now we have to decide as a family, as a unit, 
do we all go there? Do we all stay there? Do they accept this commission? Right. We're in two separate places. Like I remember as a kid, at one point when we were still living in Queens, my dad got laid off. He got a job in Orlando. So my dad was in Orlando Monday through Friday, and then he would fly standby and be with us in New York on the weekends. So it's like, these are things that people grapple with all the time. And Picard, you just chose not to. <laughs> like, True. Yeah. I, so I'm, I maybe, I'm, I don't know why I'm less willing to be more empathetic to this situation, uh, but I am not as empathetic as you are. I think that's very compassionate of you. I think I think it's empathetic because of how directly I identify with it. Like I I am a, I'm a military veteran. I I I was in the Navy, and so I spent a lot of time away from my my family. I'm also I'm also queer, so like I uh, long ago sort of gave up the idea that I'm gonna have a family one day. You know, so like and the military is part of that. Being queer is part of that. But like the the mil having that mindset already when you're already in the military makes you think about things like this. Like my brother had kids at that time. And I really do to this day, I invest so much of that emotional energy that I imagine like if I had kids, I would invest it in them. I I invest so much of my emotional energy in my nieces and nephews because I see them as like, well, this is the future of my family. I, I don't plan to have kids of my own so these kids are going to like carry on the family name and and they're going to be like our legacy and in, going into the future. And that was, I can identify with Picard in that regard of like, it's, I'm satisfied with that. That's enough for me. And it also at the same time, and I think this is part of Picard's mindset, takes a little bit of the onus off of me. It ta- it's like a little bit of, I don't have to. Do that. I can focus on exploring the galaxy or whatever my my next mission is without the quote unquote burden of having to be there for my family when I'm already there for this crew family that I'm part of. His his last line actually kind of encompasses all of that. He says he talks about like what Malcolm McDee was saying, what Sarm was saying early in the movie. Time uh, when Malcolm McDee describes time as a predator that stalks us all our lives, and Picard says that. Somebody told him that, but he realizes time is a companion who goes with us on the journey and reminds us to cherish every moment because they'll never come again. What we leave behind is not as important as how we lived. Do you agree with that? What we leave behind is not as important as how we lived. Yeah, I think I do agree with that. I think I agree with it. Yeah. I do agree with it. Because you can I, you can leave like this big legacy, right? You can leave like there could be statues of you uh, <laughs> if you're like Christopher Columbus. There could be statues of you everywhere and holidays named after you. But how you lived might have been pretty unethical. And yes. <laughs> yeah. I think we, yes, I think it's something that is very pertinent to our zeitgeist right now as a community mm. too. Like you bring up Christopher Columbus and I also think like the Me Too movement, it's like, We've got all these legacies, big things, but then we learn about how the individual actually lived their life. And, you know, you're never, I don't think anything is ever going to erase a lot of these legacies. They're kind of like woven into, but it's Mm. important to update it. And then like that becomes part of it. And it's like, did this person at the time think, oh, this is what people are going to remember? Yeah, I do. I do agree with it. Nice. One uh, one last little detail I just want to mention, because I just brought up, like, I was on a, uh, I was in the Navy. The, the scene 
where the saucer of the Enterprise detaches from the rest of the ship. It looks really cool. It's a really cool thing that they do. And I think that there's like actual precedent for the maneuver, the reason that they were doing it. They were cutting off, like you said, this saucer has the living areas, the, the deck, the command deck, all of the essential things that they need to live on the ship. Whereas the rest of it is like storage, a lot of en- like uh, secondary engineering and things like that. So on a submarine, I was on a submarine and I was part of the forward crew. I, I operate, I was in navigation division. So I fixed a lot of like the electronics for interior communications or the radar uh, or the navigation plot. And I did like charts and plots and stuff, you know, knowing where we're going basically was my job. So I was in the forward end of the ship and that's where the quote unquote command deck is where the captain is and gives orders to everybody. The back of the ship, the back of the submarine is the engine room, which is where the nuclear reactor and everything else is. And we had a procedure in place for emergencies. If there was flooding, let's say, if the entire engine room was getting flooded, it's possible to close a watertight hatch between the forward and aft compartments of the ship. And you can completely operate the whole entire ship from just the control room and have the whole entire aft all of that area completely cut off and flooded. Vice versa, if the front end of the ship is being flooded, you can do the same thing, close the same hatch, and somebody in that engine room can go into a special compartment and operate the entire ship from inside that compartment. So I think a lot of like the, the future Space Navy stuff, the science stuff that they do in Star Trek is based on real naval engineering, technology, procedures, and things like that. So that's why I say like, there's a lot of, clearly a lot of like research that goes into Star Trek and it's based on as much pseudoscience as it is. It's based on real science and real facts. I think that's just one cool detail. That is super cool. And I think this goes not to keep being like Star Trek versus Star Wars, but I remember we're rewatching some of the prequels and uh, in one scene, this ship has like this parachute thing that goes Mm. out in front of it. I forget whose ship, but I'm like, I turned I turned to my husband yeah. and I was like, what does that do? They're in space. There's no win for them to get. Like, it's, I don't think that's functional. And he, yep. my husband turned to me and he was like, it just looks cool. I mean, yep. I'm like, okay. It's like, that wouldn't happen in Star Trek. There would not be something simply to look cool. It is also functional and looks cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good point. That's a great way to put it. Is that, <laughs> yep. That's the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, <laughs> aesthetics and I love first. me some Star Wars. I just, it, sometimes right. things just look cool there. <laughs> yeah. And Star Trek form follows function in Star Wars. Function is, is maybe dead last. <laughs> like, if we consider yeah. function. <laughs> And the movie ends with kind of the same opening shot, space, Starfield, and the Enterprise warping out. I did kind of, I fast forwarded through one last little thing about Data that I want to mention, which is his his last line. He says, uh, I, I've gone through 261 distinct emotional states. I have learned to control my feelings. They will no longer control me. Data. Oh, baby doll. Yeah, I kind of was like, oh. Yes, they will. Yeah, you poor <laughs> You're so sweet. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is that's undercut immediately after he says that. They find Spot and he's like, Spot! <laughs> um, and he starts crying and he's like, I don't, I'm happy, but I don't know why I'm crying. And I feel like Dana Troy has the same. She's like, oh, sweet, sweet data. <laughs> yeah. 
So Data goes through this whole arc, and I'm I'm glad that this movie features Data so much. I feel like it's a big reason why you picked it, because it allowed yeah. us to talk about sci-fi, robots in general, automatons, programming, emotions, and a lot of really big things. Has your definition of a robot changed or been updated at all from, like, talking about Data in these ways or thinking about Data in, in the ways that this movie makes us think about data. Or I guess another way of asking that is like, does this movie help you build your definition of what a robot is in your mind? Yes, and- I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, yes, it does. Because I think, <laughs> I don't know why, but it does. I, I, think, I think this movie does a better, nah, I don't want to say better, but it does a really good job of exploring a common theme in robot movies or artificial intelligence movies. There's always this definition of when emotions come into play. And I feel like this movie does a very well thought out job of saying it's not the emotions end game that separates fun- like robots that do a function to artificial intelligence it's how they handle those emotions which i find very interesting that that is uh, the definition of the human experience it's not necessarily having a range of emotions it's how we deal with them and how we balance letting them influence but also not take over who we are and our trajectory in life. So yeah, because I feel like that's the fascinating thing with, well, that's a, that's a common theme in robot movies is like, what's that line between th- them being this one thing and then crossing over to being this other thing? Yeah. Have you seen Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams? I have not. I haven't. I that's, a, that's a movie that really explores the, the evolution of a robot as that that robot in that movie his name is Andrew and no spoilers but like as a character he goes through an evolution he goes through different states of being and he sort of defines himself in different ways throughout the movie as he's changing himself for various motivations it's it's a very fascinating look into that question i okay does this real quick is this movie a plus 1 neutral or minus 1 for robots I think it's a plus one. I think so too. Yeah. Any big like particular reason why it's a plus one? Because the the main robot, Data, who is also an android, is not the villain. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a really simplistic, that's a really simplistic answer. But like, uh, I the fact that it is a, uh, Soren is a, an Elorian, so he's not necessarily human, but you know, it's a humanoid life form that is the the main villain of this movie. And it's... We, the lesson is learned from basically the robot. That's the point. So yeah, I think it's a plus one. Like we have something to learn. Like you think you were saying, Picard learned through explaining it to Data. Oh shit! I was doing the same thing Data's doing. Right. I'm being a hypocrite if I'm yes acting like Data and telling him not to act this way. Yeah, and I think it's a big plus when the movie, the robot and the the humanoid learn equally from each other, which going along with the theme of the movie is also kind of like a lot of things in parenting in the mm-hmm. media, like, Oh, you, you learn as much from the, the idea of legacies. There we go. Wrapped it up. 
good nudge. Yeah, you're like a precocious kid will say this pearl of wisdom and you learn from them and while you're teaching them because you're an adult and you're teaching them about the world. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I can see that. It's interesting that like the robot goes through its own journey of self-discovery. It's not like in Terminator where the robot is becoming more human because of its friendship with the human, its, its experience with this human. Data is going through his own journal. He puts this chip in him and the way that he interacts with everything in his environment affects how he's developing from that point forward. So that's a very different take on a robot developing and like becoming different from its original built purpose or intended programming. So this is a very unique look into that development and journey of a a robot character, which is really, really cool. One other quick thing is uh, we didn't really mention Worf because he's not in this movie that much, but Worf, yeah. the way Worf talks, Worf could almost be an android. Worf could almost be a robot. Everything is a be- very matter of fact. It's it's very like, you know, those blast patterns are consistent with a d- 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 type three disruptor or something like that. That's very funny that you point that out because the Klingon race is a race that I think is defined by their passion and their anger. Mm. And I, and I, and I feel like the reason Worf comes across as robotic is because Worf is also a character that is always balancing a tightrope of I'm a kind of a fish out of water kind of thing. He's, that's another theme in the, in the series is, is he's always trying to balance are my Klingon emotions and, uh, ways of going is it too much for the puny humans around Ah. basically yes so i feel like Worf is a character much like like data he's the uh, hulk basically of the team right he's he's basically the hulk Worf is the hulk yeah 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 he's always angry um (laughs) uh but his his is opposite of data i think it's like data's like oh i gotta understand emotion more and i gotta mimic it and Worf is like don't show too much don't give in to that desire that emotion too much because that will be too much for the people around you to handle. Interesting. Yeah. Amanda, I have two bonus questions before we wrap up today. First bonus question. This is a section of robots versus dinosaurs called what's your snack. Amanda, what's your snack? When you used to be able to go to a movie theater, did you have a favorite movie theater snack? Um, Are you like me where you sneak a snack? I sneak a snack in sometimes snack sneaker or and the second part of the question, now that we're all stuck at home watching movies in quarantine, do you recreate your movie experience in any way? Do you, what, What's your movie snack at home? Good question. I used to be a big sneak coffee into movie theaters person. Coffee, uh, that's a... Pre, so my, we got into, really into Alamo Drafthouse. So you don't have to sneak anything into Alamo Drafthouse. They have it all. So like pre my Alamo Drafthouse days, and I think this is from when I used to live near a mall, a Concord Mills, the Concord Mills Mall. There was a Starbucks right next to the Starlight movie theater. And when they first opened, they would let you bring the Starbucks into the movie theater. It was like a policy between the two companies. And then they ended it. And Amanda was like, no dice. You let me do it once. I'm going to keep doing it. So I would finagle ways to like put my coffee in my purse and like wrap stuff around it and like would mm. spill it. And I just continued that trend into other movie theaters. Like when I first moved to New York, I would go see matinees that happened before noon because they're much cheaper, much more economical. So I would sneak my my morning coffee in with me to see this like six dollar movie that would normally cost Bold. upwards of fifteen or twenty dollars. Yeah. But but I we really got into Alma Draft House and I'm like, gotta have that peak scale sour 
And I guess we've recreated that at home. Like we generally watch movies uh, after we finish making dinner and like sitting down to dinner yep. on little TV tables. We're recreating the Alamo Draft House experience in our home without the silent cards. And the yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sort of one of two ways. If I know I'm going to be watching a movie that night, I'll either like plan it around my dinner or whatever meal I'm going to be eating next. Or if I'm like out and about, I'll think about like, oh, I'm going to be watching a movie later. Let me get some like movie candy that I like. So that often happens. But but yeah, I it's most of the time it's meals lately. Like the more I'm watching movies at home, that's my like my, my movie snack now has become movie meals. Yeah. So yeah, I'm uh, okay. Final bonus question, Amanda. Whoopi Goldberg is already in this film, but if we were going to recast Star Trek Generations... Would we keep Whoopi in the same role? Would we recast somebody else and and move Whoopi into that role? More importantly, though, we got to add Danny DeVito to this movie. So where are we putting DeVito? I feel like the obvious choice for DeVito is in the Soren character. But Ooh. I would argue... I was thinking that, Data, but yes. Oh, Data. No, I would, <laughs> see, I would argue I'm like, I would recast Danny DeVito as Captain James Kirk. That would be fun in a handbasket right there. That would be, can you see Danny DeVito being like, sounds dangerous and let's do it. Yeah, the swagger. But Data is also a very good casting choice. And so are we keeping Whoopi as Guinan? Are we moving Whoopi around at all? I mean, she's so iconic as Guinan. I feel like it's sacrilegious to say we got to move her around. But if we did. Can she play multiple characters? She could be, oh my God, it's like being John Malkovich, but it's being Whoopi Goldberg as kind of, <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. Um, another thing I think I would consider is like, what if we we swapped Brent Spiner and Whoopi Goldberg? Okay. They played each other's roles. That would also be super fun. Cause I yeah. feel like those two actors would be like, this is also fun. So. Yeah. Excellent. Um, what about you? <laughs> Uh, so definitely, I definitely want DeVito as Data. I just think there's so much gold to be mined out of that. Either Data or if <laughs> Worf had a bigger role in the movie, Worf, 100%. Just anytime, anytime DeVito can be swagger or surly, he just plays both of those really, really well. And so having him go through like this emotionless DeVito state into extreme emotion DeVito state would be so much fun to watch. Yeah, it would actually. Whoopi, I think you're absolutely right. I think, especially because I'm not, I haven't seen enough of Guinan in the show. So I haven't seen enough to know exactly how important she is or exactly how much, you know, she factors into certain episodes. So yeah, I wouldn't want to take away like whatever significance she already has in this film. And in this film, we'd get to see like her introduction to Starfleet, which is really cool. So, so yeah, I think I'd keep Whoopi as Guinan, but 100% DeVito is data, 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 Danny DeVito. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm going to call Paramount Pictures. I'm going to let them know that when they reboot this movie, we've mm-hmm. got the casting down for them. That's yeah, one less thing to worry about. Yeah. Amanda, I can't thank you enough for coming onto the show today. You were an awesome guest. And I'm so glad that you introduced Robots versus Dinosaurs to Star Trek. I think that it's going to open up a lot of conversations, hopefully more Guests will bring more Star Trek movies on. Hopefully you'll come back on as a returning guest sometime and bring on another robot movie or another great dinosaur movie. Do you have any any final thoughts about this movie? No, I think we covered it. 
it's a really great movie. And I think I have a better understanding of it now that we've done this. <laughs> awesome. I didn't realize so much of it overlapped until I sat and talked with about it with you. So thank you. Yeah, it was really fun. Amanda, is there anything that you want to plug or, or promote? I do a section on Frigid New York's Frigid Fridays most of the time. They're a great indie theater in New York that is obviously struggling like everyone during COVID. So you should check out their Frigid Fridays programming. They also have mm-hmm. a great show called The Reparations Show. They both happen on Fridays via their Facebook. And uh, our bar has a show coming up. And True. that's an exciting project that you and I both have worked on in the past. There's, when is their show again? So yet the next our bar is going to be, I think this episode will be after uh, okay. the most recent well, um, show. Well, it happens but, monthly, so check it out. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, uh, we, we are in that monthly sketch show. It's the first Wednesday of every month. So when this episode comes out, the next one, the next our bar you'll be looking forward to is in February. Uh, but Amanda, you are a, you are for Frigid, you review movies as well, right? So you are like the perfect guest to have on this movie review podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's just, it's a, it's a 15, sometimes 20 minute segment called going to the movies at home with Jenny and Amanda during Frigid Fridays. And we just pick movies that we want to watch that maybe hit a theme like pre-Halloween. We were watching some movies that lended themselves to costumes because Jenny and I, Jenny Osco, who is the artistic director and head of Sour Grapes Productions, and she's also staff at Frigid New York. We both like to dress up. We're both big makeup geeks. But the last one we did was, gosh, what a happiest season. So now we're transitioning to some holiday movies. We took a break because we had this Halloween movie thing very much in the spirit of MST3K called Ha Ha Halloween, where we basically watched a horror movie in the public domain and talked throughout it. <laughs> we had running commentary and then had guest artists. So uh, yeah, it's a fun segment for Jude Fridays. Uh, you should check it out. Awesome. Yes. Support independent theater. There's going to be a link to the Frigid Fridays on, uh, in our show notes, as well as to our bar. So you can check out both of those. Amanda, thank you again. And what's a good like Star Trek thing we can end on? Make it so. Or like, what's better than that? Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. <laughs> Especially in the age of COVID. May you live long and prosper. Ooh, that was dark, Amanda. Dark, too dark. <laughs> dark, but hopeful. Dark but hopeful. (laughs) All right, Amanda. Live long and prosper. Audience, you can't see it, but we're doing the Vulcan Vulcan hand signal, Vulcan greeting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. (laughs) All right, audience, you too. Live long and prosper. Make it so. Engage. Uh, Warp speed, Mr. Sulu. Um, uh, Beam beam me up. (laughs) I'm I'm running out of them. You got them all. I feel like you got them. I got them all. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Take that, you cocky bastard. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. 